We are going to take a look at Colonel James Lamar. He's 94 years old. Check him out. Um, there he is. He's smiling. And when you find out what kind of life he had lived, you would question how could a, how could a man going through what he did smile at 94 years old? Well, five decades ago, he was playing a card game with his fellow prisoners of war uh, with cards made of toilet paper. And uh, he was living at the Hanoi Hilton in North Vietnam. Um, he spent seven years of his life as a POW uh, at the notorious prison camp. Those of you that study history, you, you know that this place had a horrific reputation on how it treated its prisoners. Well, Lamar is enjoying life, as you saw, living in Austin, Texas today. And he tells recently, uh, August 1st, he was interviewed, and he tells what happened to him, how he became a POW. And uh, he was shot down flying his plane on an assignment. And so just a quick history. In 1948, he joined the Air Force. Uh, he flew different uh, combat missions during the Korean War. From there, he started training pilots for the Air Force. And then when the Vietnam War started, he got called up to head over there. He said, when we got the news that we were going to go, I got an immediate premonition that something was going to happen to me. I would be shot down, killed, prisoner. I didn't know what, but I knew something bad was going to happen. It just so happened on Lamar's 101st mission, on May 6th, 1965, he was shot down during a bombing run over a rail yard railroad yard. And he said, we got to our target area. I was the first one to go in. I pulled up at 12,000 feet, rolled over. And when I was headed down, I would like to have been someplace else because the flak, which is the anti-aircraft fire, was just a solid layer below me. As I dove through it, boom, I got hit. My plane got hit in the fuselage forward of the cockpit, but there was an immediate fire in the cockpit. And so he pulled out of the dive, and he started uh, different maneuvers to uh, try and get away from the anti-aircraft fire, radioed his team that he was heading to a safe bailout area about 50 miles away, when immediately after I said that, there came... An excited voice from my number four man who yelled at me, get out, lead, you've got a big fire going. So I just reached out for the handles, the left one, the canopy went, and the right one, I went. One problem, the handbook on the aircraft said, do not eject over 525 knots, nautical miles per hour. If you do, all sorts of bad things can happen. Well, the last time I saw the airspeed tape, just before I left the cockpit, it was going rapidly through 700 knots. That's 805 miles per hour. So I had ejected at above the speed of sound. He woke up with a broken arm, his parachute hanging from a tree, 
a group of Vietnamese peasants eventually found them. They took them to a military post and turned them over to the North Vietnamese Army, which they began torturing him. And they tried to get Lamar to lure other fighter pilots into an ambush in that area. And after failing to get any information out of him, the soldiers took him to Wei Low Prison, which the American prisoners called it Hanoi Hilton, where he would spend seven years of his life. He said during the first few years at the prison camp, his captors subjected him to various degrees of mental and physical abuse. He said uh, the POWs figured out that they could safely communicate around lunchtime, and that's when the guards of the camp took a break for lunch. He said, one day when we were communicating at noon, I told the guys, man, I, I, I'm very depressed. I'm, I'm what you would say, you know, there's combat depression, and I'm dealing with that right now. And Jerry Denton, some of you may have heard his name, was another prisoner of war there, and he talked to me. And this is what he said, I'll tell you what to do, Jim, you pray. You keep faith in God, your country, and your family, and then you live each day one at a time. That's the way you're going to get through. Well, Lamar said that was right, because my depression lifted and I started living one day at a time. And that's how I went through the total of 2,400 and some odd days. Lamar was eventually released on February 12, 1973, with several hundred other prisoners of war in Operation Homecoming. Now, Colonel James Lamar had to go all the way to Vietnam to learn a secret. And that secret was told to him by Jerry Denton, and that's to live one day at a time. And friend, if you're struggling this morning, in fact, you may be here, you may be watching online where you don't want to be here. You don't want to watch, man. You are, you know, anti-God. There's a little bit of a rebellious streak going on in you. You're pushing, you're, you're stiff-arming God because you feel like he's messed with you. He's abandoned you for whatever reason it may be. But James Lamar learned, here it is, you live one day at a time. You live one day at a time with your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you get through. And so let's take a look at Philippians chapter 4. And um, I'm going to ask you a question if you believe that this text is relevant for the days that you and I are living in right now. Okay? Is that fair? So let's read it and let's see your conclusion. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Euodia and Sintichi, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. 
They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, here we go. Let's dial in. Always be full of joy in the Lord. In case you didn't catch it, he says, I say it again, rejoice. <laughs> Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Okay, let's dial in a little more. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then, then, you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Let's just take verses 6 and 7. Is that relevant for today, 2022, friends? Yes or no? I believe it is. I believe it's very relevant. And when people can mock God and mock the Bible, it's sad. It's sad because Paul is giving us some good advice. He's giving us some wisdom how we can live our lives one day at a time in 2022. That gets me fired up. And so uh, let's pray and talk to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though Paul was under house arrest, he was chained to a praetorium guard. He wasn't having a pity party. He wasn't worried. He wasn't anxious. He was, well, living one day at a time. And he got fired up over the opportunity he had to live for you, even while under house arrest. And Lord, help us today, wherever we are in this journey of life, that we would always remind ourselves to keep our eyes on you, because that's what's most important. And Lord, to keep that relationship healthy and up to date, no matter what we're going through. When life doesn't make sense, we can trust you. And so thank you for your word, Lord, and every person that's in this room and those watching online, may they have and may I have an encounter with you, Lord, today. An encounter in a way that maybe we brought stuff with us, baggage with us, Lord. Help us to leave it behind in your hands. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In times like these, we need a Savior. There's a song that goes like that. <laughs> in times like these, we discover what we believe, don't we? Indeed, we do. Anybody can trust the Lord when everything's going your way, but when crises hit the fan in your life... It's a challenge for you and I to rejoice, isn't it? It sure is. It's tough to give thanks. It's tough to walk by faith when our faith is being tested. And the question that we can submit to each other is, um, can you handle these challenging times? Yes or no? Well, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that should be an affirmative answer. Yes, indeed, we can. 
Will you walk in worry or will you experience God's peace that guards your heart? Reading this text this morning, we see where Paul is saying, no matter where you are in this journey of life, God wants to deposit his peace into your life. That's what he wants. You and I have a decision to make. Will we allow that to happen or will we push back and say, I'm not interested in God's peace, man. I like to have a messed up mind, you know? I like to be addicted to drugs, man, to help me settle down. I like to get into alcohol that gives me a little pause during the day, you know, to help me sleep better at night. Or whatever addiction you, you, you find that it's working for you. Friends, Jesus is a God of hope. And he wants you to be free from any life-controlling habit that's causing you to lean in on instead of trusting him fully. Now listen, I'm not a perfect man, but I can tell you this, I have experienced victory in my life, and it is liberating. It is liberating. It makes my walk with Christ enjoyable. And that's what God wants for you. And so we're learning together. God's not done with me. And that's part of the cool thing, man, is every single day God is working in me. He's working in you. And when you see that life change, that gets you fired up. That got Paul fired up because even while under house arrest, God was working in him and he saw transformation happening, even tied to a praetorium guard. That's how Paul could keep his balance through it all. So when you look at Paul's life, you know, he could choose to worry about, you know, am I going to come out alive? Am I going to be killed by Nero? You know, what's my future? He could have had a, you know, just stressed out inside that house arrest deal and called it an end of the day, man. What, you know, why write these letters to the churches? It's over for me. No, instead he was looking to the future. And God used him. And so uh, Paul demonstrated a man who was chained to a praetorium guard with a chain this long. It wasn't a three-foot chain, a 10-foot chain. It was an 18-inch chain for two years. And he kept his faith in Jesus Christ. He was fired up being chained 18 inches <laughs> to a praetorium guard. How can that happen, man? Huh? How can that happen? It's God's grace. It's his grace. One day at a time. One day at a time. Max Lucado talks about worry this way. He says, worry is the logical response to chaos in our world. So let's start making the list. He's being a little facetious here. Worry helps our health. Lose sleep and live longer. A nervous stomach is a happy stomach, isn't it? <laughs> worry brings joy. And for that reason, we plan worry vacations. It's summertime. Some of you have already gone on your worry vacation. Others camp, fish, shop, or sightsee. You and I plan seven days of worry. 
Uh, let's, let's talk about Monday. You stress out over the economy. Tuesday, dread next year's workload. Wednesday, enumerate over all the communicable diseases to which we're vulnerable. Thursday, list the reasons we could be unemployed by year's end. Friday, calculate the number of ways to die in an airplane. Saturday, envision life after falling off a ladder. Sunday, record all the characteristics people don't like in us. And your first entry after enjoying that week's vacation, you're a worrywart. You don't do this. No, he says, you don't sunbathe on the shores of the Sea of Dread. Whoops. It appears I confused the terms. We prefer worry-free, not worry-full vacations. Worry won't end our problems, let's face it. Worry has no advantages. It does ruin our health, robs our joy, and it changes nothing. Our days stand no chance against the terrorist of the land of worry. But here it is. Christ offers a worry bazooka. A worry bazooka! Remember how he taught us to pray in Luke 11, 3? Give us each day the food we need. The Amplified says, give us each day our daily bread. What's that? It's living, what, one day at a time. Yeah. Right? And so that simple sentence unveils, unveils God's provision plan for us that we do. As we've already heard, we live one day at a time. As Jerry Denton told Colonel James Lamar over 57 years ago. And that same message is being proclaimed today to you and to me. And so, as we walk through the text this morning, may God enlighten us, open the door to every part of our lives where we can experience his peace. One thing to kick it off, of course, is Matthew 28, 20, the promise that Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not I am with you sometimes, but really this verse should relieve and help relieve worry in our lives, knowing that Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. Yeah. I'm going to digress for a moment. Some of you may come in this morning somewhat discouraged because the, you didn't see the sun in the Life Church parking lot. But let me encourage you, uh, go to the airport and go up at 60,000 feet and you'll find the sun right there. It hasn't gone anywhere, right? It hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there. Uh, it's just a good reminder. Take a, take, a, take a glimpse through the clouds and you'll see the sun. That's a promise as well from the Lord. Quick review in your notes. You can see all your blanks on the top end filled in. And we want you to have a worry-free Sunday morning um, to get all these. So we've tried to make it easy for you. Oh, how I love you. Paul says, verse 1, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you. For you are my joy and the crown I receive from work. Stay true. Again, Paul, as you know, uses military language and athletic language quite frequently. Here he's pulling from a military charge of a commanding officer speaking to the soldiers 
under his authority, and he's saying, no matter what happens, you've been given your post, you need to stay put, you need to stay true, you stand firm. No going AWOL, no um, leaving the battlefield when things get tough, you stay true. Paul says that because he loves the church, he loves the people at Philippi, and he knows what's best for him. And as a loving spiritual leader, he's saying, stay true to the Lord. Number two, resolve the conflict, you two. In other words, uh, in the church at Philippi, there was some conflict that came up. And if you live long enough, you'll find conflict in any and every church across the planet. Why is that? It's because people, people are the problem, right? And, and it's so easy for people to get their feelings hurt. You know, I want it done my way. You know, this is all about me, and that's not true. But when people have those attitudes, they get their feelings hurt, uh, it causes friction and disunity. And so Paul recognized, he heard the report had come to him that these two ladies, even though they had helped found this church, they were in conflict. And Paul is basically saying, hey, ladies, come on. This is bigger than you. It's about God and his kingdom representing him well. We don't want to hurt the Lord's reputation in Philippi, so reconcile. Come on, reconcile. Three, be full of joy no matter what. Verse four, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. This is a command. This is not a suggestion or, you know, go to a rejoice or joyful seminar. Paul's not, uh, you know, if you feel like it, if everything is going great, you rejoice. No, it's a command that, and it's in the Greek, it literally means keep on rejoicing. In other words, don't give up on rejoicing. Don't stop rejoicing when life gets tough. How do you do that? Well, you keep on rejoicing. <laughs> we'll find out more about that in a few moments. Number four, step up by modeling Christ. Verse 5a, let everyone see that you're considerate. In other words, coming off of the conflict between these two ladies, Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus Christ, be considerate, yield your own rights, defer to the others around you. In other words, humble yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Let your consideration, your gentleness be known to everybody. It's really you're modeling the character of Jesus when you do that. And uh, number five, don't forget he's coming soon. Verse 5b, remember the Lord is coming soon. That means he's always near you and he's coming back for you. Just like he said, I am with you always. Paul says, remember that he's coming back. And because we have that promise, that should help motivate us to stay rejoicing, knowing you're not going to be here forever. Heaven is your forever home. Good news? Yeah, man. So we rejoice this morning. Was that cool? All your blanks are filled in and we've already covered it. Here we are, number six. 
responding to the worry war. Paul is giving us a response on how to deal with worry. Because, you know, uh, <clears throat> worry has always been a problem with human beings. Verse 6 and 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he does. He's done, and then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Worry is a thief. Have you noticed? It steals your peace, your confidence, and your joy. Are you happy when you worry? No, no. We're all living in a world full of worry and stress right now. It's really, we could spend some time just looking at the chart today to see where it's exploding in our country. You know, and so this text, man, we should almost make a copy of verses 6 and 7 and put it on a refrigerator, put it on our mirror when we shave in the morning, guys, as a reminder, right? Yeah. Here it is, Proverbs 12, 25, worry weighs a person down, an encouraging word cheers a person up. Check this out, this anchor, that's kind of what it is, uh, worry weighs a person down, The anchor slipped off the ship. They just gave me the high sign up there. Anyway, when you have a big anchor, what happens, man? If you're hanging on the anchor, down to the bottom of the ocean you go. It weighs you down. That's the imagery here given in Proverbs. Worry weighs a person down. It's like carrying an anchor wherever you go. An encouraging word cheers a person up. I hope this morning... This is an encouraging word for all of us, right? It should be an encouraging word. It should cheer us up by the time we walk out these doors. And so because of that, we can get fired up. Worry has been called a universal addiction. Why is that? Why are people so uptight? Well, you get up in the morning to an alarm clock, right? It's not a comfort clock. Maybe we should start a new business selling comfort clocks, you know? Help people out. Start your day off right. Somebody said if we don't have a job, we worry about it. If we do have a job, we worry about losing it. If we, had, if we don't have a car, we worry about it. If we have a car, we worry about it breaking down. If we don't have money, we worry about it. If we do have money, we worry about losing it. If we're sick, we worry about it. If we're not sick, we worry about getting sick. It is true. Aren't we humans funny, huh? The impact, worry impact, verse 6a, don't worry about anything. Worry in the Greek means to tear or divide the mind. And you can imagine for all you farmers out there, the blade uh, behind the oxen cutting through the soil, that's exactly the imagery that Paul is giving that when we worry, we allow the blade to divide our minds. It splits it in half. And um, that's a pretty accurate description who people love to worry. 
story about a man who said to his friend, I'm really in trouble. I have a mountain of credit card debt. I lost my job. My car is being repossessed and my house is in foreclosure. But I'm not worried about it. His friend said, well, how can that be? He said, well, I've hired a professional worrier and he does all the worrying for me. His friend replied, well, that's great. How much does a professional worrier cost? He said, $50,000 a year. Wow, that's expensive, his friend said. Where are you going to get that kind of money? The man replied, I don't know, but that's for him to worry about. (laughs) Indeed. Jesus also condemns worry. He doesn't suggest we should not worry. He commands it. And really, when we fail to do that, it's a sin. Matthew 6, 25. That is why I, Jesus, tell you not to worry about everyday life. Verse 27. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life. And why worry about clothing? And he goes on, if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers, he will certainly care for you. Verse 31, so don't worry. The fourth time Jesus uses the worry, the word worry in this text. He's making a point. He recognizes people's human nature is to worry. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, That should not be the case. So don't worry about these things. Saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. Do you see there's a prerequisite here, what God is saying. When you don't worry, you need to seek God's kingdom first. And by doing that, he'll give you everything that you need. Matthew 6, 27, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Can they? Yes or no? No, they don't. They don't. They probably will shorten it. Corey Ten Boom puts it this way, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. When we start worrying about the future, we're investing our strength out farther away from today, and then we don't have strength to live for today. Mark Twain, the great theologian, not. (laughs) He says, I am an old man, and I have had many troubles. Most of them never happened. That's right. That's right. Jesus gives us two reasons why we should not worry. He puts focus, it puts focus on the wrong things. Verse 25, Matthew 6, isn't life more than food in your body, more than clothing? He's saying, isn't life more important than food? When we worry, we get our focus blurred, you know? Worry distorts our thinking, and it's like the magnifying glass. When we put it up against the stuff, it makes it bigger. Do I look bigger to you? No. How about that? No. A magnifying glass is the wrong focus. And we take our eyes off of God. 
things are distorted from reality, and they tend to look a lot worse. David and Goliath, uh, some of you that grew up in Sunday school heard this story before, 1 Samuel 17. David comes to the battlefield. Goliath's been marching out there, you know, blasting God, Israel, the army. And David says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion and a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. It's interesting, Saul and his army were fearful because they were looking with, through the magnifying glass at their problem. David kept his eyes on God and said, this is no problem. You see, where you put your focus Verse 45, David replied to the Philistine, you come with me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Notice he's not saying, I will conquer you. Today, the Lord will conquer you. You see it? The Lord living in and through us, friends, that's where we get victory, not us trying harder. And I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with the sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. You know, Saul and his army were all worried about Goliath, this one man. They looked at Goliath, and they were overcome with fear and David wasn't intimidated by the giant. Why not? Because he looked to God on the battlefield. When we're on our battlefield, maybe today, tomorrow, sometime this week, maybe you're in the middle of a battle, don't look at the enemy, what you're facing. Keep your eyes on Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. We stand on that. And so... David had had a history of God's faithfulness, and he was able to go into the present knowing that God will be faithful. God is capable or he isn't capable. Worry tells God he is not capable. Corey Tenboom, once again, you know, in Ravensbrook concentration camp, she could have been worried about, you know, is she going to survive? But in her book, Each New Day, she wrote, when I, worry to go, when I worry, I go to the mirror and say to myself, this tremendous thing which is worrying me is beyond a solution. It is especially too hard for Jesus Christ to handle. And after I have said that, I smile and I am sorry. See? Corey was saying, man, when I start to worry, I, I, I tell God he's not able you know, he doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the ability to do it. Number two, it's a waste of time. Matthew six twenty seven. Jesus asked, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Worry is wasted time and energy. It's kind of like the rocking chair. <laughs> I 
Oh, it showed up, the rocking chair. Oh, yeah, yeah. What about the rocking chair? It's something we can do, but it never gets us anywhere. Right? Yeah. So, Dr. Walter Cavert studied things people worry about, and in his research he found that 40% of the things we worry about never happen, 30% concern the past, 12% are needless worries about our well-being, 10% are petty issues, only 8% are legitimate concerns, which means 92% of the time you're wasting energy in worry time. Mm. And I can, I can relate to that. When I was a kid, we lived four blocks from a steel factory, and I didn't know it. And so every night on the third shift, there was the pounding. And so in bed, I always thought a monster is coming down the street, and he just happens to turn in front of my house. And then he comes through the back door, up the stairs into the kitchen, and my bedroom was right off the kitchen. And I worried every, you know, nightmares, the monster. You know, your imagination's going crazy. Well, when I got old enough, we were driving by the factory, and I realized that's the sound I hear every single night. There's no monster. I was worried about a monster coming through the back door every single night for how many years? It was wasted energy, right? It wasn't reality. It was simply a steel factory. So Paul gives us a worry solution in verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. How many of you would like to learn more about worry this morning? You know, how to worry some more. Let's have a seminar, you know. We'll meet in the cafe before you go, you know, because you're thinking, I don't want to conquer worry. I want to worry more. Well, God tells us not to do something. He replaces, replaces it with something to do. So we don't worry. We what? We do. And we pray, number one. There's a plaque that reads, why pray when you can worry? That's how a lot of people live. Mark Batterson pastors in Washington, D.C., and he says that worry encouraged us to think, think of worry as a prayer alarm. Every time it goes off, you put it to prayer. You know? You put it to prayer. And so praying, Paul is saying, take it to the Lord. Tell him those things that concern you. Worry, kind of recapping what it means, it means to be pulled in opposite directions. Our hopes are pulled one way, our fears are pulled another. It also means to strangle, to seize by the throat or to choke. Literally, worry can choke the life out of you. It robs you of peace. It strangles the enjoyment of life from you. And case in point, just about three weeks ago, um, there was a story up in Pennsylvania that a 18-foot pet boa constrictor 
uh, found its way around its owner. And um, this isn't the real picture, but that's a picture of a boa constrictor. And this guy, this, the dude that owned the boa constrictor, uh, his boa constrictor got out of the cage and it was choking him. You know, the head was out here and the body of the boa was wrapped around his neck and he, he was just about out of it before he called 911 for help. And by the time the police got there, he was on the floor, unconscious. And the police were able to shoot the snake in the head. But a few days later, a few days later, um, The dude died. He never came out of it. The boa constrictor, they say, kill their prey by suffocation, cutting off the blood supply. The snakes tend to catch the prey in their jaws before throwing coils around them and squeezing tightly. Kind of sounds like worry, doesn't it? With each breath the victim takes, the snake squeezes more and more tightly until it dies. Friends, that's what worry does. It squeezes the life out of you. The neighbors talk about this man. They had seen that snake before. The owner had it out in his front yard. Constrictor snakes are advertised as being safe and low maintenance. I wonder what he has to say about it now. The snakes are not considered particularly aggressive, and it's believed they can become quite tame with regular handling. Well, that snake didn't get the memo. So... A boa constrictor. And the next time you start to worry, think about a boa constrictor. That image. That's what, it's, that's what worry is doing to you. It's choking the life out of you. And that should help. So prayer, Paul is saying, helps offload the worry onto God. Some men and women over time have been in foxholes and they pray, you know, foxhole prayers, like the man who prayed, Lord, get me out of here and I'll never bother you again. And he didn't. <laughs> Too bad. That's not what Paul has in mind here. In 1 Peter 5, 7, the Phillips translation, cast all your cares upon God because you are his personal concern. Doesn't that help? Indeed it does. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Number two, talk to God about what you need. That's what Paul says in verse 6b. Tell God what you need. Needs refers to prayer. It's an emotional heart crying out to God. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you haven't. I've been there. You know, where it's an emotional appeal to God for his help. Psalm 55, 22 the message puts it this way, pile your troubles on God's shoulders. He'll carry your load. He'll help you out. That's good news. It is. Years ago, a pastor was talking with his Christian counselor friend about all the terrible, painful things people go through. The pastor friend asked his friend, so what do you tell people when they come to see you with intense and unbearable pain? 
He looked at the pastor and said, the truth. And after a few moments, he continued, I tell them that I don't have any good reason for this, but that God knows and hurts with them just as much and will somehow use this as a catalyst for greater good. They both sat in silence for a few moments following that statement, and then the pastor asked him, you really believe that? And the pastor was thinking, it wasn't that I doubted him. I just knew that my friend could not have said those words unless he had experienced some excruciating losses in his own life. And the counselor responded, I do believe it. It took me a long time, in fact, years. But yes, I do. He went on to share about having been, a, having been abused in his childhood by a friend of his family, about his father's alcoholism, about his attempts to run away from God in college through drugs, sex, and alcohol. And the counselor concluded, sometimes we have to grieve the losses in our life before we can clear a space inside where our faith has room to grow. You tell God what you need. That's the only way to grow closer to God when terrible things happen. You talk, to, you talk to God about what you need, friend. You, you pour your heart out before him. You put it on the table. God's waiting for that instead of carrying it inside. Talk to God. Pour out your heart to him. And number three, be thankful. Verse 6c, and thank him for all he has done. That word thank means the act of giving thanks. It means cheerfulness of a grateful heart. There we uh, That rejoice shows up again. It's intentional about taking time, time to say, Lord, thank you for your goodness. We sing about the goodness of the Lord. How can you do that? We have to settle those issues in life that have been painful. We tell God what we need. Lord, I need you to heal me. This happened to me. This happened to me. I need your help. And God is faithful. Because the longer you have a history with the Lord, the more you realize that he is a good God. It's true. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Friends, we need to cultivate that attitude, you know, because we live in a thankless society. You know, people think they're owed everything. You know, I deserve this. But as a follower of Christ, Christ gave his life on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we can be clean before God. Our sins forgiven. We stand righteous before him. That in itself is enough to be thankful and to live by that. And so, number two, the worry-free promise, verse 7, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26, 3 confirms this promise. You, God, will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed 
on you. There you have it. He will keep you in perfect peace. That's the worry-free promise that God has for us. So the promise, number one, God's peace. You will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Paul tells us if we stop worrying and we start turning to God, trusting, you know, whatever we're going through, we will experience God's peace in our lives. It will happen. We're not told all our problems are going to go away, you know. We aren't told that, you know, we're going to understand all the circumstances that we go through life. No, no. Sometimes the problem gets worse before it gets better. And what we're, we're told is that this churning, this battle that we're facing, this worrying that we're, we're dealing with, it will be replaced with the peace of God. If we turn to God, worry gives way to faith. And it gives way to a calm confidence that God is in control. God is able. Jesus said in John 14, 27, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging? Jesus saying that. I'm leaving you with a gift. Oh, baby. What a gift. We sure need it. On July 27, 2013, Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in California, returned to his pulpit for the first time in four months for 112 days. One day at a time, Rick had been seeking the Lord after his youngest son took his own life at age 27. When Rick spoke to his church that Sunday in July, he began a new series of messages titled, How to Get Through What You're Going Through. The first point of that sermon was, life doesn't make sense, but we can have peace because of God's presence and his love. Three years later, having worked through his, his family's grief and recovery, Rick published an article titled, Trust One Day at a Time. There it is again, one day at a time. He wrote, God wants you to trust him one day at a time. Give us this day our daily bread, not for next week, not for next year, not for next month, just one day at a time. You trust God and receive his peace one day at a time, just like Colonel Jim Lamar did. Number two, God's guard, 7B, his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. It's another military term. What Paul is saying is that guard will surround your mind and heart. That guard will act as a bouncer, so to speak. Anything that's in your heart and mind that shouldn't be there, that brings worry, anxiety, etc., this guard kicks that out of your mind to protect that peace that God wants to give you. And so, here's the cool thing. God promises his peace, and he promises a guard, a guard around your heart and your mind so that you can experience that. And um, man, so how do we find peace? 
It's a good question. You find it only through Jesus Christ. You trust him as your Savior. In Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. You find it in him. You find peace through practice. You start trusting him every time worry comes up. You put it into practice. Lord, I'm telling you what I need here. And three, you have peace through prayer and reading God's word. Max Aquino said, your worries decrease as your understanding of your heavenly father increases. There you go. God is faithful. How does that happen? By getting to know your loving heavenly father who knows everything about you. Bill Dallas wrote a book called Lessons from San Quentin in which he talks about a moment of his greatest suffering which became a turning point in his life. He had been living for money, possession, success, pleasure, and he was doing quite well at it. But he took a few wrong turns, got involved in financial dealings that were less than transparent, and he ended up in San Quentin prison. But something strange happened while he was there. He met God. <laughs> What's God doing in a prison? Well, Bill found a group of men serving life sentences who had found God, and he discovered that they had a greater sense of purpose and peace than the people he had been around in the business world. The Lord was with Bill in prison, and Bill says if he were to visit one more place before he dies, it wouldn't be the Eiffel Tower, the Great Wall of China, or the Taj Mahal. Instead, it would be that prison cell where he met God and experienced God's peace. Yeah. So the question is, are you experiencing God's peace this morning? Is what worries you really worth the effort in the light of eternity? Do an audit on your thoughts. Do they lean towards worry or do they lean towards God's peace? Just because everybody's worrying today doesn't mean you have to. Recognize that worry is a sin. Confess that as sin. Identify your worries. Tell them to God. Let God know how you feel and what concerns you. And having prayed about it, leave it with him. Turn the light off and let God work the third shift. He's faithful. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, in these days that where people are worrying so much, consuming the joy right out of us. That Paul wrote this letter long ago, and it's relevant for today. Help us, Lord, to apply your peace in our lives one day at a time. Help us do that, Lord. We trust you. And for those that don't know you this morning, I pray that before they leave, they'll say, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you. You died on the cross for my sins. You paid my sin debt in full. 
I trust you. I believe you are who you say you are, the Savior of the world. I'm inviting you to be number one in my life right now. Forgive my sins. Write my name in the book of life. And I'll live for you the rest of my life through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. 